You're about to listen to a Second City Works presentation brought to you in partnership with WGN Radio. Subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform or listen on WGNRadio.com and be sure to share. The Second City is a world famous comedy theater and it got so famous because it has produced generation after generation of comedy superstars. That didn't happen by magic. Second City's improvisational pedagogy fuels great performance and the same practices that have made stars of everyone from Bill Murray to Tina Fey can be applied for success offstage, at work, at home, and in the world. I'm Kelly Leonard, Vice President of Creative Strategy, Innovation, and Business Development at The Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, discovering connections, and building a better future. This is Getting to Yes And. So my guest today is Christian Mosbier, who is a co-founder of the consulting firm RED Associates and is a professor of applied humanities at the New School in New York City. His work has appeared in The Wall Street Journal, The Atlantic, Financial Times, and Bloomberg Business Week. He's got a new book. It's called Look, How to Pay Attention in a Distracted World. Enjoy the pod. Days can be counted by the money spent. Today was just another better left unsaid. Days can be counted by the time to rent. Tomorrow is just another like the one that comes next. The corner of the highway that leads to the job at the desk by the boss with the Christian Maspier, welcome to the show. Thank you. This sounds fun. I think it'll be fun. Uh, I'm excited about talking to you. I really enjoyed this book. And I am I am doing a thing I don't normally do. And I want to sort of start at the end of the book, at the end of your book. Okay. And I'm hoping we can begin this conversation with this journey you talk about at the end of your book. And that journey starts with a problem that you have. And that problem is the remote control. <laughs> so, and as I said to your publicist, most publishers, I think, would insist that you put this whole story at the front of the book. I very much appreciated that it was at the end of the book, because in, in, in many ways, you have a philosophical, a scientific, a, a, a theoretical idea that you sort of talk about. And then you have this incredible case study. So I, I guess let's start with your what's your problem with remote control? And then what did it lead you to? It's, well, it, I was obsessed with it mm-hmm. for a while. Um, maybe for a decade, I was quite obsessed with trying to understand why on earth we still had one. Like, it just felt so out of place that we Mm -hmm. would sit on a couch and just just flip through channels endlessly. And, you know, I'm from Denmark, and I grew up with one channel. Uh, They added another one in in the late 80s, so we had two channels. Mm -hmm. But, but, But then seeing hundreds and hundreds of channels... And seeing people just flip through them and then start all over seemed like such an absurd thing. Mm -hmm. So I tried to figure out that can't be the future. Like it has to change in some way. And then I spent quite a lot of time trying to figure out what that future was, which turned out to be the future of media. Right. Um, And I think one of the things I appreciated uh, that you talk about, you say, quote, our worst nightmare was a PowerPoint deck proclaiming our branded methodology, end quote, which would guard to your, your company. And this is something that I've talked about with my friend, Neil Stevenson, who used to run IDEO here in Chicago. And, and our, our sort of pet theory was once you've codified a thing into your eight points, 
Um, that'll probably work really great for three years and will become obsolete afterwards when someone moves on to their next, you know, sort of eight point methodology. And I know in my work at, at Second City, you know, we don't codify improvisation. Improvisation is a thing that everyone does every day. We just happen to have practices and skills and insights re regarding it. And we're not looking to turn it into that sort of thing. So if you can talk a little bit about your reluctance to sort of like codify in that sense and, and how that might relate to even this particular discovery that you made out of that, that problem with the remote control, that would be great. Right. So um, method is important mm -hmm. and structure of method is important. And I'm sure you have that at Second City in mm -hmm. some way or another. Yep. And I think it's even quite famous, the, yeah. the way right. you operate. But reducing that to a three-step or eight-step manual means that people get lazy. Yeah. And they st and they start relying on the crutch of that manual. And if you're doing simple things, that's okay. But if you're doing really hard things, you know, if I would imagine the kinds of things you do are not natural. At least they wouldn't be natural to me. No. Yeah. I wouldn't. I wouldn't find it easy to do it. And mm -hmm. if I had a three-step manual, that would be nice. But I would quite quickly rely on that. So if you if you're doing like what I've been doing, which is trying to figure out what the future might look like, then you can be very quickly be very um, you can very quickly be very lazy about it. So if you if you look at I, I just saw yesterday that McKinsey, the the consulting company, they said that uh, the future of a the uh, uh, the new AI technologies that came out in the last year would be worth four trillion dollars. And and that came out of some methodology. And it just happens to be the same number that they thought would come out of the metaverse two years yeah. ago. Yeah. And it also was the same number that would come out of cryptocurrency. So I, I, I worry about the method that, yeah. that, that it somehow ends up with these wildly... Um, uh, uh, you know, result, these wild results that predicts everything is about the future. And I think we need a little more uh, curiosity and nervousness about our own answers. Um, so that's why it's so scary to me when you reduce things that are hard to three or eight steps. Yeah. So for us, of course, the, the process that we use improvisationally to create the shows that we do, for example, at Second City, we do many things, but we're known for these shows. So it's an ensemble of six performers, a musical director, a stage manager, a director who are creating content in conversation with an audience over a 12 week period. They're experimenting uh, in front of that audience, prototyping the, the material, keeping the things that work, throwing away the things that don't. Sometimes those things they throw away end up being important. Then we bring them back. And that, and that creates a, a production that really maps quite nicely to what we understand about the scientific method. Um, but it is in no way complete because it can't be. Everything is driven by wh whatever context exists at any given moment. And that context is going to change, especially in the world we live in now. I mean, you talk, I remember my dad was in media and I grew up here in the States and, and we had the first remote control that I can recall any of my friends having. And it was attached by a long cord to this massive VCR that we had to go, go through those, the, those channels. Uh, and, and then sit, and I had a similar frustration in terms of watching that of being just like, I don't, I don't know that this is like, like it, it, it just felt boring in, in, in nature in terms of the, 
the, the fly, flying through. But of course, I got exposed at, at a young age to so much different art, um, books all around the house, di- di- different, different ways of thinking, youngest of six boys that I think helped as well. Um, and so I'm curious, I mean, you, you know, you grew up also in a, in a, in a situation that is probably d- just extremely different than the world you're building your family in, in, in New York, you're in New York still, right? I am. I am. Yeah. Yes. So, I mean, you know, and you grew up in a Marxist family, right? Yeah. Yes, I did. So, yeah. yeah so a, a hard left, like real yeah. hard left. And at that time that was normal. Many, mm-hmm. many people believed in this ideology that they knew and Mm -hmm. they knew what the future would bring there's a theory about history the structure of history and your own role in it so it's kind of a cultish uh situation and it just when i turned i don't know 14 or 15 it just became more and more absurd to think that we were right um and of course the wall came down and i i was i happened to be in the middle of it which was because i was on a trip with my my class uh in berlin and um, and it, it just the whole thing just collapsed. Uh, and after that, I've not been so sure about much. Um, mm-hmm. It it just when you've been very sure about what the future is, what your role is in it, for a long time, and you grew up in a culture like that, then when that collapses, you will end up seeing that it's all up for debate. Like th- yeah. there is no there's no necessary reason for thinking that AI is the future. There's no necessary reason for all these predictions that people have. And uh, I think it's a healthy sort of, uh, not skepticism, it's just a fundamental ontological position that we don't know. Um, so, so, so that helped me with that in a, in a, in a sort of a reverse way. You could say. Well, yeah, because the human brain, I mean, what we know about the human brain, right, it, it, the way it's evolved is it does not like to not know. And, and it likes to create patterns. Um, and what we know about our work is we have to make our performers uh, adept at working within um, uh, complexity, uh, working within discomfort. Uh, we, we have to lower the fear and judgment part of the brain, both judgment of self and judgment of others with regard to being creative and, and, and innovative and whatever those words mean. And I know they're, they're loaded and mean different things for different people. Um, but I think this idea in, in look that you're talking about is at the base level until you shed those sort of preconceptions, those patterns and all that, you're likely not going to see all that's there. You'll see right. some of what's there, but not all. Yes. Yes, exactly. I would say, I mean, when you look at a jam session, I like jazz. So when you go to a late night jam session Mm -hmm. and you see someone new coming in with a bag with a trumpet in it or something, you just hear a hush of judgment, like a hard hush of judgment. But then you see the structure of it, that there are chords and chord progressions and there's rhythmic structures and there's a method to the madness. And then once this trumpeter or the drummer comes in, it just melts away. And it's a marvel to see. Right. And I would imagine that experience you have, there is structure to it. But yeah. one, and, and when there's a new person coming in, you, there's a lot of judgment. Can she do it? You know, uh, but, but after, if, if you fight that and if you then merge with that person, it just, it happens. And it's a beautiful thing when it does. It's a, yeah. it's gorgeous. Yeah. 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 Um, one of the things that's always interesting to me is when we hold auditions at Second City, and we're 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 a little more exclusive than we used to be. But back in the 
sort of early 90s when I was first leading the company, we kind of saw everyone who wanted to sign up. So that'd be, that'd be a thousand people who would, who would come in. And invariably, you'd have someone who had no idea what they were doing. They had no training. You know, normally you try to have people with training, but and, and they might have slipped through. They might have done something good. So then they, they make it to the next round. But we discovered that this, oh, no, no, this person doesn't know what they're doing. And so what we end up doing uh, when when they have to pair off and do two-person scenes is we don't put that person with, like, the next worst person. We actually put that person with the best person. Right. Because what a really good improviser can do is they can work with anyone. They can make them look good. They can use whatever is being offered out there to help make this picture. Now, the sad part of that is the person who's not very good doesn't understand that they didn't do a good job because this material is working. It's just working because the one other person. And I think that's hard for people because it, it, it's not just about like everyone being this incredible, high-performing, well-oiled machine. It, it really it, it requires a, a you know a couple or a few people. Yes, at the top level, everyone should be there, but you know it's so. And I think the fact is why it appears to be magic. When we see the jazz improvisers, when we see the incredible football team, soccer team, or a second city performer, it feels like magic and it's not. It's just deep practice. Yeah. I mean, if you, just if you drive on the road, if -hmm. you imagine the magic of of a city like Chicago, everybody goes out of the door, they get into their cars, Mm -hmm. and then somehow they find their way without crashing almost always. How? it's absurdly skillful. It and is. of course, people have driven before, but there are mm-hmm. a lot of people there that aren't great drivers. But yeah. somehow they merge and and get off ramps and on ramps. And f- somehow, you know, through lights and intersections, they can they can participate in the magic that is traffic. Yeah. Um, and you can observe that at the highest level. So that is skills. That's human skill at a very high level. And if you look at the way we study skill today, I mean, the way psychologists, for instance, study skills mm-hmm. in universities, it is to do it in a lab setting yeah. to say, can you do this or that? Or between these two choices, which, which one would you do? Um, and that's not skill at the level of Second City or mm-hmm. driving, even driving. It is, it is um, a banal, uh, uh, simple, diluted version of what humans can be. And, you know, when you, when you study humans for a living, which I've done my whole life, you end up having a lot of respect for human mm, skill and, and activity and coordination uh, and how we lift each other up and how we somehow figure out to live in cities. Uh, you know, it's, it's supply chain, the supply chains that feed us, you know, think about it. It's mm-hmm. nuts that we can be f- even be fed when we live in a city like Chicago. Yes. And somehow the magic of markets and the magic of interactions between people and highly skilled people in every part of the structure can, can do this. And, you know, wh- for me, the magic of every day is not just seeing very skilled people like in, in Second City or in, a, in Blue Note. It is just walking down the street. Like right. how, if when I open the door to 13th Street where I live, and seeing how children, trucks, you know, electric bike bikes, people in all kinds of you know from all all over the world somehow coordinate how to do that, uh, you know, and that, that's the skill I call hyper reflection is to see how other people do that, and to see how other people 
um, based on what do they do what they do. So kind of a second order meta skill. And I think you, you can observe those situations. And when you do, the everyday becomes magic. It becomes mm-hmm. just a, a, a sight to be seen. Um, so, of course, you live in a very extreme version. You live in a mm-hmm. talent machine, right? And, and, and historically, a significant part of American culture and Canadian culture. Mm-hmm. Um, exactly. And, and uh, you have produced some of the most important people that make us laugh all the time, mm-hmm. uh, which, isn't, which is a good thing. Uh, but even just walking down 13th Street can be uh, sort of a wonder. Right. And I'm curious, too, because I face this here, which is this is it's not like a one. It's not like like you figure it out and now you're good forever. In fact, I, I was just uh, at, uh, delivering a keynote and someone asked me in the Q&A what I thought the impediment to my own sort of creative work might, might be. And I, I often say my past success, because once you have success in a certain regard, it is just such an easy tendency to go there. And then a lot of times it's this matching thing where it's like, oh, they kind of look like Stephen Colbert and sound like Stephen Colbert. They're going to do what Stephen Colbert does. And then you're doing them a disservice and you might be doing yourself a disservice because every every comedian is different and every every actor is different. <clears throat> and so curious for yourself, too, because you you've had success in your career. How do you get past that to to have the beginner's mindset continually over and over again? Are there practices? Are there, you know, nudges or tricks you do for yourself? Yes. So the, so the whole book is about observation. Mm-hmm. Um, and observation is my tool. It's, it's what I do naturally. Uh, and it's what I've been making a living from um, over, over the years. And I wanted to share that, at least what inspired me, in terms of what observation is. And, and um, there are several things about it. You know, the, the, there, you could say that there are three levels of observation. There's just going down the street, you know, and, and you somehow, without thinking much, just drone through the street. And because you know what a school is, you know how children behave. Yeah. You can somehow predict it. If you drive and two children disappear behind a, a truck, you know somehow when they're going to come on the other side, and then they're still moving objects. They're mm-hmm. not disappearing, which a machine or a camera might do. Then there's a second order that you can observe, which is you thinking about it, like thinking about why is this happening? And then there's a third order, which is thinking about other people thinking about it. Mm-hmm. So it's not necessarily thought in the sense that you have a clear structure and you have language for it. It's often pre-language, pre concept even but you can observe the structure of behavior and that that's that sort of second order i call hyper reflection uh, which is a the, my skill that's the that's the thing i do that's the thing i taught um for years um it's what i be, built my company on that you can see the structure of behavior without asking anyone because people don't know why they're doing what they're doing. And you can, by doing that, you can make things for people. So in, in my case, you can make cars and phones and TV sets and financial services and hospitals and, you know, all kinds of things you can make based on, on that skill of observation. And the prerequisite of that skill is fighting your own judgment. It is yeah. exactly what you're saying. Getting rid of yeah. your own, um, preconceived notions and presuppositions of saying, I know this already. I know what this is. 
But but if you if you live in a sort of a sense of doubt about your own judgment, and you know that you're probably wrong, and instead of that, instead of instead of judging, you observe and just record what's going on, and then later figure out what that means. That state of just recording activity of humans, you can later figure out why they're doing it in a way that they might not even know themselves. Uh, so, so it's, it's observation and the lack of judgment or arresting your own judgment. Yeah, I think too. I think for many people, they can sort of get their minds around the sort of observation, the way we think about it, and then I think this 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 idea of uh, there's more than there, there's more than us at work here. That's the thing I think that becomes very hard for people. You, you write in the book. Uh, about uh, quote an assumption is that our experiences are ours and ours alone, and end quote. And 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 I think that this this reality is that we are never alone, even when we're alone. We're in relation to something, somewhere, somehow. It is very hard for a lot of people to wrap their mind around because it's we're already like uh, unreliable, unreliable narrators of our own stories. <laughs> Right. So the idea of then having someone else who is an unreliable narrator of their story, of course, this is the seeds of great comedy, and and I think the seeds of also invention, which is which is what what you what you're involved in in your work. Yes, I agree. Um, I agree. It's it's a source of inspiration as well. Mm-hmm. But I mean, what I mean, if you get a little philosophical, um, in the last couple hundred years since René Descartes, really, we've thought of ourselves as subjects that stand against objects and observe those objects. And we certainly can. I mean, you can look at your table and you can you can see it's gray and it's, um, you know, made out of stone and so on. But rarely we do that. Most of the time we just see chair and chairs related to tables and, you know, conversations and all kinds of things, food, maybe even. And in most of the time, we're in the midst of that. We're not a subject thinking about or observing or or in some way um, intellectually relating to, you know, something or other, a fire truck or a chair. Uh, We're in the midst of it. And we're not, we're not, um, as subjects that are individual, I, I'm not interested in individuals at all, actually. People get very surprised when they ask me, could you please go and observe people? I don't care about individuals. I care about how, how bodies, individual humans relate to each other because right. they completely talk like each other. They adjust to each other. They're always with others. Mm-hmm. And it's a fundamental premise that we're not uh, individualized self-contained entities we're social entities and we're completely defined by our our world so traffic again people will adjust you if you don't exactly fit into the way we drive here so in new york in la a distance between two cars is a distance between two cars in new york a distance between two cars is a is a opportunity to get ahead uh, so, so the so the style of driving is completely different to the two yes. towns, yes. and we adjust we adjust each other and ourselves to that rhythm, or that um, being together of it, or you know language. If I if I pronounce something incorrectly, which happens all the time because English is my second language, mm-hmm. people on a would be unaware that they are going to say the same word within the next two minutes in order to adjust the way I said it. 
And it's not that they want to correct me. It's just that this is how we talk around here. And, right. you know, right. and, and, and you can feel that when you go somewhere, you feel that when you travel, that you will try to adjust to something very confusing. And it's because we need that sort of um, socialization process that happens, which means that we're fundamentally always at the ground level with others. Right. Even, even if we were alone on an island, we would still experience the world as with others. Yes. That's quite different from a, from a scientific view or from a, from a, from a rationalist or in, I, in the book I call it intellectualists. View, yeah. That everything is about thought and language. And I'm saying, no, it's not. It's, it's experienced way before that. Yeah. And you could say that's bad because we're not rational. We are kind of not as good as robots or something like that who are maybe experiencing everything through language. But I think it's a marvel. I think it's amazing to, to look at. And that's not something we can think about. We can't ask people about it. It just, it just happens and it's observable, which is, you know, the point of the book. It's funny. I, I, I had not actually uh, thought about this in relation to your book until right now when we were talking, because next week's podcast, I was just typing up my notes is with uh, Martin Christensen, who is Danish, uh, and Nick Chatter. And it's the book is called The Language Game. I have it right here. The Language Game, How Improvisation Created Language and Changed the World. And so these, these two scientists are suggesting that past modes of understanding language were that it was sort of a chiseled out of a, a foundation that always existed. And they're suggesting that no, it's 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 played. It's like charades. It's it's we communicate in many different ways depending on the mutual context we might understand. Some of it includes language. Sometimes it's clicks or noises, and sometimes it's gestures and, and all those things. But it's essentially through play. Um, and as I'm listening to you talk, you know, I'm hearing a couple things that sort of are, are, are troubling for me in the society we live in right now. One is the de-emphasis around play, cutting out recess, cutting out arts programs, that sort of thing in school, and this obsession with freedom, and people use the word freedom, uh, which doesn't acknowledge that other thing you're talking about, which is we are always in consort, in relation with others. We have to be, we need each other to survive, that sort of thing. I don't know what freedom you speak of when you, when, when you talk about that, because at the end of the day, we are going to need each other, all of us, um, and, and just culturally, especially in this country, and I, I'm sure it's true in others, um, that's that people are using language in a certain way to suggest something else. Right. I mean, the last three years, we've been through a process where some people claim, and they, I think they still claim, that we can live in a non-embodied way at work. That that it's, yeah. That it is possible to have good ideas or think through, think with others or mm -hmm. work with others by being bodyless. You know, in our case, we have no, right now we're looking at screens and yes. we don't have a lower body right now, which is insane to that anybody would suggest that that could be the norm. I mean, they started calling mm -hmm. it the new normal and it would be fine to live on a beach somewhere in Costa Rica and work in California and that that would be effective. Like that anyone would think that we wouldn't need each other in a room mm -hmm. together is for me. I mean, mm -hmm. it was so surprising that anyone could say it at that time and still, still say it, yeah. um, that, that creativity or work in any way can happen without us being bodies in rooms together 
or in you know in in spaces together that are physical um is a very scary thought because it's exactly the individualism that we can live abstract abstracted lives yeah and i think the more abstract our lives become and looking at a screen for other people is a very abstract thing yeah. the more abstracted life becomes the more miserable you become yeah. the more languishing you would experience the more you will feel stuck and i think a lot of our the malaise we live through right now comes from abstraction mm-hmm. and for me philosophically practically workwise creatively all aspects of life abstraction is the enemy mm-hmm. so so i think you're right it's um without the coordination that is necessary that isn't through language actually um we will be lost and miserable and you know just unhappy um there's this great metaphor by wittgenstein ludwig wittgenstein where he's trying to argue that not everything is language and that not everything is expressed through language and his example is two people building a wall with bricks yeah. if you look at those people what they actually do they almost don't talk mm-hmm. but somehow they coordinate the thinness of the of the uh, glue or the the adhesive that glues together stones and it ends up becoming a brick that wall that can stand for 200 years like that doesn't happen through language it happens through skill and coordination in space um so philosophically that means that we're not language is not necessarily the only um way of the, the only place we live we also live in skill and we live in bodies um and it's a huge philosophical breakthrough in a way to say it's um it's not conceptual all the time we don't live through concepts uh we just are in the midst of people and we know how to coordinate and we know how to learn and i think that one of the problems we have is though that reality is much harder to test in sort of an academic situation right so so and i got uh, nick epley is one of the scientists at the university of chicago that we worked with for we had a program there that looked at behavioral science through the lens of improvisation so literally we're bringing embodied practices to use in sort of experiments and develop programs and that sort of thing and a lot of the there's a lot of um uh academics talk about brainstorming as not a thing um and not having sort of um studies that that show them this and and my my contention to him is like have you ever studied the six actors at second city you've worked together for two years over that time and how they innovate and create um uh the the content that they do and and the moments that they do and the characters and all that and of course not because if you're just studying six people it's not a big enough sample size right to be legitimate exactly i mean behavioral science has a lot to answer for I would mm-hmm. have to say. I mean that a couple of weeks ago there was a scandal that someone studying truth and our relationship to honesty yeah. actually had fiddled with the data which is yeah. a joke. And mm-hmm. uh, and and you could say that's a scandal. But I think the real scandal of behavioral sciences is that they think they can study humans that way. That mm-hmm. that they think that they can study people in a lab and say something meaningful and helpful about how we operate. Mm-hmm. that makes no sense to me yet i don't know how often you read in newspapers that beh- studies say that humans behave in some yeah. way because they tested it on you know 35 uh, graduate students 
or something like that. But they did it in a way where you can isolate variables. Yeah. And it, it's, it's psychologists or social scientists that try to look at people as if we were bacteria or mm-hmm. planets or something like that, that are inspired by the natural sciences and think that we can study humans in the same way that the natural sciences study the world. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a scandal, much mm-hmm. bigger than fiddling with, you know, fiddling with data when you study honesty, which is just a, you know, a, a funny episode. But mm-hmm. over the past, 15 years, they've had so much traction in terms of explaining human behavior. Right. And I've seen, I've seen it from the inside and it's almost always wrong or mm-hmm. just banal and unimportant. Mm-hmm. So I think this uh, behavioral psychologists have a lot to answer for. Um, and it's just generally boring <laughs> in terms of, in terms of describing human activity and human behavior. How do you feel about neuroscience in that regard? I mean, I, it drives me nuts. Okay. <laughs> you know, people say uh, people would like to buy this car because of the amygdala or something like that. Uh-huh, well, right. they can measure they can measure neurons on some side of the brain. The thing is, we know nothing about the brain, not really. We don't understand how it learns. We don't understand how it behaves. Yet people make wild predictions based on putting people in a machine that makes a lot of noise and showing them images. And then they think that they conclude everything about what love is or right. what French or what friendship or what creativity is. So I, I think it's grotesque. I mean, that we, it's fantastic. I mean, it's fantastic. The technology is amazing. Yeah. And it's, and it, and, and we should absolutely do way more than we already do, but that they get a microphone to say something broad about the world because they have this, technology without knowing much about what the brain even is in the first place or consciousness or any, you know, people talk about these wild concepts and they know nothing about it. So we should stop being in love with um, natural, natural science techniques that mm-hmm. try to explain human behavior in a broad sense. And we should mm-hmm. stop, we should start observing people in their context, doing things skillfully mm-hmm. Um way more instead so i I sort of methodologically philosophically i'm just against it i think it's stupid Mm -hmm. okay Um, great all right i want to go back to the remote control and i want to go back to this um when you looked at the marginal practices of a tiny group of people in okinawa who all had this interest in movies and tv shows shot in monument valley in arizona so take take us through through that because this is a very odd journey that leads us to a very specific place that we all live today with our viewing habits. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So at that point, this is a long time ago, maybe 25 years ago. Right. I, I was, I was obsessed with a remote control because mm-hmm. it didn't make sense to me. Mm-hmm. Then I convinced some companies to help to invest in looking at behaviors that could point in the direction of the future. So what could be new habits? What would be new ways of relating to media that wasn't flipping through channels that you buy in a pack from AT&T or something like that? Mm -hmm. And we went out to look at what we call marginal practices. So central practices would be the way we do things today, which is very interesting. So how people look at TVs or use TVs in a normal family. Uh, but new behaviors would be at that time 
would be people that start experimenting with other behaviors. So I was interested in people that steal content. So at the time, there were these technologies that could, where you could download snippets of data or sometimes even whole movies uh, and so on that, um, that you weren't allowed to have. And you weren't allowed to take it for different kinds of rights reasons. But people did it anyway. And they didn't necessarily do it to steal. They did it because they wanted their hands of that specific information. Mm-hmm. And then we found little pockets of that behavior all around the world. And the first one was in Okinawa in Japan, um, where these people were obsessed with, you know, movies shot, and they're great movies shot in Monument Valley. And we found then people that were deeply obsessed with the works of Twin, of Twin Peaks, the, the, yeah. the David Lynch yeah. uh, series. And we found, so again, foot, particular football players from the past, you know, and so on. And they all had some of the same structure, which was, they watched a lot of it at the same time. They did it together. It was a social event. They, it was a global event. People would go, because of internet connectivity, they would start meeting people that were like them, had the same interests all over the planet. Mm-hmm. So you'll find these micro communities with obsessives. And then you would find people that, at least we found that again and again, all around the world, people that would then be hosting these things and starting to produce their own media based on their interest. So if you think about it, we found binge watching, we ha- which we haven't seen in that way before. We found micro communities around content. We found what we today call YouTubers or podcasters. So people that are central to a discussion that might not be CNN. It, you know, it's, it's quite specific. In your case, you're interested in creativity and um, coordination and creation and all those things. And you're a node in a, in a network of people that do that. Mm-hmm. And we also found that the future of TV will be, will be social. We will talk about it. We will engage with each other about it. We will watch it together. And that doesn't mean that we're always in the same space. It means that we comment on things. Right. So kind of early indications of social media and how we relate to, to um, the production of media and how, and this is of course, because cameras and microphones and so on became available. Uh, we could suddenly see this boom in production. So 20, 25 years ago, we could already see the, the, the beginning sketch of the future of TV. And in this case, we work for telecom companies and a big manufacturer of TV sets and so on. And if you, if you can see that future, you can start making bets on it and you can start seeing the future will not be the channel, the remote control. The future will be, uh, YouTube. Right. Uh, the future will not be the TV set. It'll be much more, it will be smaller and the screen sets will be smaller. We will still have TVs and we'll still watch, you know, Super Bowl on it. But, but most of the, what we today call content, we didn't call it back then. We just no. called it TV. Mm-hmm. Um, will be watched on smaller screens. So basically, by by looking at behavior and then saying, what would happen? And imagining, what would happen if this became the norm? Like, what if it wasn't marginal practice anymore, but became the normal practice on a normal Tuesday somewhere in the world? Then you can sort of start say, making a bet because you never know, but you can start making a bet. How are we going to make TVs? How are we going to integrate software? How are we relating to people making TV, uh, you know, to people making 
content, what we today call content. What do we even call it, right? Do we call it binge watching when people watch a lot of it together? Yeah. Um, and we called all of that social TV. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was the name we had for it, you mm-hmm. know, before YouTube really became, you know, a big thing. Um, and, and I think it's still a good name for it, for the way we make and interact with and consume what we today call content. So that, so it's an example of how you can see behaviors of the future. You can, you can see the future by finding the pockets of behavior where it already exists. So that's that famous saying, the future is already here. It's just unevenly distributed. Right. It, it, it really is. And, and you can observe it if you, in my case, we had millions of dollars to send people around the world to do right, this right. Uh, because we work for corporations that could afford it. But you can do it in all kinds of ways. You can find the future of political behavior, of media, of all kinds of things that way. Well, I think, too, as you're telling the story, I'm, I'm sort of realizing, you know, as a, as a young person, well, growing up and then also coming into into work, uh, this this term water cooler conversation, right? The, they like, what are we all talking about the water? And then recognize, you know, not having the foresight to recognize, oh, that's important. This this uh, the communication after at a certain time, and and it it can it can be it's just the fact that we want to get get together and talk. And I noticed this this morning because so many people are watching the bear. And being in Chicago, this is a show that started to be about Italian beef, and that's a big thing. And you know, uh, and 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 everyone here is like, a, you know, but where are you in the cycle of watching it? Because now it's got season two, but I, that is relatively rarer now than it was as as a young person growing up, where it's like we all watched the last episode of Mash or Johnny Carson or or whatever. But this idea of the social nature. Um, was, I mean, again, I think what, what's sort of u- unique and what you're talking about is using these small sets to then identify the larger. And I think so much of our thinking, whether it's influenced by science or culture, is goes the other way. G- give me the large to show me how, how to deal in the, in the small. Yeah. I mean, I'm a huge believer in statistics and Mm -hmm. i like technology a lot but what you can do by observational studies that are smaller in size is you can you can form hypotheses Mm -hmm. that are not that are not created based on your experience but created based on other people's experience the actual Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and these hypotheses you can find indicators you can say if this is true, if, if we think that the future of TV is social, we think the production of TV is smaller, much smaller, we think it's much more specialized, and we think there were these behaviors around it, then you can find indicators and you can track those indicators and say, if this indicator pops with more than one, but many of these at the same time, it's, it's more likely that we're right. And if it doesn't, it's more likely that we were actually wrong and we have to adopt our, our hypothesis. So in, in philosophical theory, that's called, uh, that's called abductive reasoning. So yeah. it's not scientific. It's pre hypothesis. Yeah. And all scientists do it. You know, even the most science science people, <laughs> where do they get their ideas from? Sure. Well, they get them from observation. And then you can go, then you can roll out the entire scientific process and test it at big scale and, you know, statistical significance and AI, whatever you, you want to use. 
But fundamentally, there's a spark before that. And I think the best way of, of systematizing and feed ideas for that is through observation of, in my case, human activity. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. abductive reasoning is, is, is the word for that. And it's, um, you know, it, it's the most delightful part because it's the most creative part. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's the part I, I would imagine with you yeah. at the water cooler, the, the, the best question to ask is, why is this funny? Like, mm-hmm. why are people mm-hmm. laughing at that? What's the root of that? Mm-hmm. What's the meaningful difference between this being funny and not funny? Or yeah. this being the bear being helpful in order to understand where I live or not helpful in order to understand. Where I live. So finding the me- meaningful differences through just wonder, like why, why is this uh, funny or interesting or important? Um, well, it's, it's, so I'm, I have the benefit of being married to a um, comedy professor <laughs> So my, my wife has both worked at Second City and she's a 10-year professor, runs the first ever BA com- in comedy writing performance at Columbia College here, uh, Every Parent's Worst Nightmare. So uh, her co- and she's got a book coming out next year and she has a theory of comedy and, and it, it, it's, it's, it's a nice one and it's u- unique to her, but that uh, almost all comedy contains three elements, which is uh, pain, distance, and recognition. Mm-hmm. And so you're basically like a mixing board, mixing those different things. So... Other people have talked about benign violation, different sort of theories of comedy, which involve this sort of pain and distance element. But the other is simple recognition, like, oh, my dad's like that. Or, oh, I see myself self in this. And it's why something that is not funny, like you can't make the math of why that's funny uh, and, and because it doesn't add up in that sort of way. It's simply like you're relating to, she's, she used to call truth, change it to recognition, because it's not always truthful. It's just something we recognize. Right. There could be truth in it. Certainly. Sure. Absolutely. And, and, and I think great comedy has truth in it, right? That's, that's the thing where we're like, that is feels like a, if not a personal truth, a universal truth, of, of, of course, but, but for the laughter mechanism, and this is, yeah, of course, I mean, we, we, you know, we love doing this here and trying to, trying to analyze those things. And, and, and sometimes too, a, a great gift is watching these shows develop and having a director sort of say to an actor, hey, I think you're going to get a harder laugh if you just move your head, you know, 60 degrees. And then suddenly everyone's laughing. Right. Like, what is it? What happened? Is it, is it just that more people saw your face? I mean, that could, you know, but it is, it's as, it's as gentle as that at, at, right. at times in, in terms of that. Um, and, and, it's lo- and it's lovely and it's wonderful. And, it's, and as you mentioned, it's our lab. We get in, in, and we have the benefit that our output is laughter, which just feels good most of the time. Yeah. So, what's the book called? It's called Funnier, okay. uh, and the title is based on when she does open houses. Often, dads or moms come up to her and say, "Are you going to make my son or daughter funny?" And she goes, "I can't make them funny. I can make them funnier. Okay. I can take the thing they have and get the most out of it." And that could that end up being Tina Fey or Amy Poehler, maybe, but it might just be someone who sort of figure out, figures out how to use their the, the the comedy persona that they've got in a way that's maybe more effective in their everyday activity. Right. Interesting. Yeah, I'll read that. Yeah, yeah. I'll read that book. Uh, we will send it to you. All right. So I'm going to ask you for a yes and story in a moment. Uh, but one of the things that I loved about reading your book is I read a lot of books. I read a lot of the same studies, and this is a book that introduced me to a lot of thinkers I didn't know. Certainly some I did. I know the work of Cezanne, but I did not know uh, 
Maurice Merleau-Ponty. And the other uh, individual I did not know, and this is at the end of the book, is J.A. Baker, uh, who wrote a book called, uh, I'm going to try to pronounce it correctly, Peregrine? Peregrine, yeah. Yeah. Uh, tell us about your, that's an important inclusion. It seems like this is very important to you, this, this, this book. It's, it's my favorite book in the world. Yeah. I read it every time I feel uh, blue in some way or another. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, um, it's the most beautiful book. And it's written by um, a man called J.A. Baker. We don't know much about him. He might have worked in a juice factory. Some people say he worked in the library in Essex, in, in, um, in eastern England, like east of London. And he basically observed the Peregrine Falcon for 10 years. And the book record intensely careful observation of what's going on with peregrine falcons. Of course, just like I said, with individuals, in, individuals are not interesting. Peregrine falcons are not interesting, except in their entire environment. So he becomes more and more obsessed with uh, these birds and, and, it, and its environment and becomes almost merges with what he watches. Um, he starts saying, he starts saying, talking about the bird, he ends up saying we about it. Um, and he feel he has flight envy. He feels sorry for people that are stuck to the ground. And he's sort of the great poet of the skies in a way. And he's the best observer I've ever seen. Um, the, the, the detail and the rigor of his observation, the way he interprets it um, is, and the, the persistence, the, the, you know, the stamina, of of the observation is just incredible. So I would read that book before you read mine. Ah. Um, it, it, it is just, um, it is, yeah, the best observation I've ever seen. Um, and um, and it, it, it's strange to say it's about birds, but my students, so I taught my stu- students about human observation. And the first book I give them is this Peregrine book. And say, so why the hell are you, why are you giving me a book about birds? But in the end, they say, that's the one that made it click for me. Yeah. That's the one where I understood the careful nature and the organized nature of observation and how you can truly understand something if you do that. So in a, in a way, I just wanted to write a book about that book. I mean, yeah. It was, yeah, it was yeah. the beginning of it. It's why I taught the class. It's the main inspiration in my professional life. Uh, is not, I mean, Merleau-Ponty is, a, uh, is someone I taught classes of and find deeply interesting um, and, and insightful and deep. But in the end, it was just, I just wanted to write about birds. Mm-hmm. It's funny. It made me think of a book that has that kind of importance for me, which is Robert McFarlane's The Lost Words. Right. I don't know if you know. Right? Yeah. Yes. It, a, a sim- and the sentiment behind the book, of course, is something to me that was terribly interesting. This idea of the words that were just taken out of a dictionary for young people that are part of the natural world right. and this attempt to sort of reclaim it. Just that story, the, the, the illustrations, the poetry of it. And McFarlane's a wonderful sort of narrator of the physical world we live in, having read his other work. Um, and and I'll say this is that it's not it's that that's a very unusual old Kelly the the one who sort of grew up that would not be what I was reading you know in terms of 
uh, Milan Kundera passed away today. And I, I was thinking back of like, oh, Italo Calvino, Milan Kundera, these were the authors that I was serving. And then, and then as you get older too, you, you know, you, you change. I think you become more philosophical and, and then, and then hopefully, and in my case, more in touch with the physical world that you live in, especially those of us who are surrounded by screens right. and, and recognizing, I mean, I work in a live theater as our base, you know, product and our other product is all about people getting in rooms together. And of course we had to pivot when COVID happened and we did it on screens and okay, you know, at least, at least we had that is how I'll put that. But it was, it, it, it's not better. It's decidedly not better. Right. Um, and, and I think we're also, you know, potentially, and I see this with young people, you know, my own kids and, and my wife, students and all that is, Wow, take take two years to three years away from us being able to be in rooms, and it's trauma. Mm, exactly. Yeah, I saw my students, especially the creative ones. So my class was philosophical, but the jazz school and the opera singers and the performing artists mm-hmm. were the best students. They were better than the philosophy students in studying philosophy because they have a relationship to their body. Um, and and um, if you want to study Merleau-Ponty and you want to study observation, understanding your s- self in space is important. And I can just see them fall apart. Like I, I could right. see them o- over the course of being taught on on a screen that they were miserable and they you know they became more and more lifeless. So so yeah. I, th- I think we haven't even understood the beginning of the consequences that that. The screen nonsense um, has has had on our lives and our kids' lives. Um, so I, I, I agree with you that it's absolutely necessary. And, and we did something we didn't think through, I think. No, 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 no. Uh, all right. We always end the podcast with a yes and story. Do you have one for us? We, well, I was thinking when you gave the question, I was thinking it's a permanent feature in my life that, yeah. that, um, uh, I learned from when I was a kid and quite convinced about what the world would look like in the future that I'm always wrong. So when somebody, when I, when you see something, the key to observation is when you see something, you say, well, that's different from what I thought. Mm-hmm. You know, I, 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 I'm probably wrong again and mm-hmm. lose a trust in your own intuition about what the future is. And then you say, but if that's true, or yes, and if this mm-hmm. is true, mm-hmm. then I have to rethink my entire way of thinking about this. And, and that might be important. Mm-hmm. If you, in my case, try to invent things, mm-hmm. uh, or in your case, setting up shows, yeah, that it's, a, it's not just a fun thing to do. And it's not just um, a, a sort of th- something that works in theory. It's a, it's a permanent feature for doing, being successful is to yeah. say, to say yes and to yourself being wrong. That's like, right. All the time. And, all the time. Um, exactly. So, so it's a, it's, I think it's a good position to have to your own relationship to truth mm. that, that you, that you're, that you have to accept when there is observation or data that goes against how you believe the world works. And the people that do that are healthier, I think. Uh, are happier, are more creative, and lead better lives than the people that are so sure of themselves 
and mm-hmm. are not able to make that move. Um, it's painful. And, you know, having your, having your world undermined on a systematic, constant basis is... is, is, is <laughs> but it's is happening like, whether you like it or not. Exactly. So I, I actually really thought that the yes and point is a feature that wherever you are in your work life, mm. whether you are, you're just getting started or you're, you know, a master of the universe, if you don't have that, you will be so wrong so many times. And if you, if you do have that attitude to truth and your own worldview, you will maybe be right more often. I love it. The book is called Look, How to Pay Attention in a Distracted World. Christian Lasbier, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you. So fun. Getting the Yes And is produced by Second City Works and WGN Radio. Our editor is Oridian Fierro from WGN. We get support at the Second City from Colleen Fahey, Mike Farinaccio, and Emma Smith. The music you hear at the beginning and end of the show is by Jukebox the Ghost. For more information about the Second City, you can go to www.secondcity.com or you can email us directly at works at secondcity.com. Survive